If you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 8, and we will be in verse 27 through uh, verse 30. And this passage of Scripture is one in which really begins to change the narrative of the book of Mark. You know, we've walked through from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, to Mark chapter 8, verse 26, and we've really seen a lot of the same uh, themes and same sorts of stuff. And this is really where the book begins to morph and shift in, in a real way. It begins to look towards the cross. We begin to see more of Jesus' calling towards his uh, death on the cross. And so these four verses are really central in the turning point towards the book of Mark. So we need to uh, dive in, jump in here, and then see these in light of what we'll see next week as we take communion together. So Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? The disciples told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Verse 29, and Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. Let's pray together. Lord, help We ask help in a multitude of ways daily, but here we've come just to ask for your help as we open your word, as we read it, study it, and apply it. We never want this to be an exercise in uh, time fulfilling. We want this to be an exercise of our heart as we're nourished by your word and not only let it hit our heads, but to let it be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway that our hearts would be spurred on by this question that Jesus asked, that you would convict us where we need convicting, you would comfort us where we need comfort, you would give us peace where we need peace, but Lord, that we would not stay the same. Lord, we commit this time to you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The first question, or the first blank on your outline is the ramifications of Jesus' inquiry. Ramifications of Jesus' inquiry. So what we see so far through the book of Mark is that Jesus is becoming more and more popular with the people. We've seen everywhere he's going, you, you recall, he, he goes anywhere and people just run out to meet him. The sick people are coming out, the lame, the deaf, the friends of the friends are just coming out on mats to meet Jesus. Anytime they cross over on the sea, people are already there to meet him. Right? We've seen two miracles in which he's provided bread to 4,000, not including the women and children, 5,000, not including the women and the children. So Jesus is becoming gradually and steadily more and more popular. As his uh, standing with the um, people becomes more, uh, he gets more power or more uh, uh, status with the people around him, uh, his uh, popularity with the religious folks begins to decrease. But you, you see in this an affirmation that the crowds are on board in many ways with Jesus. They think this guy can teach really well. They're impressed with his authoritative teaching, his healings. And so the people are just continuing to press in around Jesus. This will be particularly important next week as we look at Jesus' rebuke of Peter. Uh, and when Peter asked Jesus to stop saying kind of some crazy things, right? So Jesus is becoming more and more popular. And we see in this that his response, the the disciples' responses is that, yes, Jesus, you are esteemed, right? Some are saying that you are Elijah. Some are saying that you're John the Baptist. And others are saying that you are a prophet. 
And so in this, we need to dive in just for a moment because we see that these are not true of Jesus. You see A, the letter A on your outline, Jesus was not forerunner, but fulfillment. Jesus was not forerunner, but fulfillment. And this is an important distinction because here we see that the people believe that Jesus is another prophet. That they think that possibly he's another John the Baptist that's come to prepare the way for another. Maybe he's another Elijah that's a, a great man of God who's pointing to a time that would be coming. But we recognize that Jesus is not simply a forerunner of one to come, but he is the fulfillment of all that's been spoken. I mean, look at what John the Baptist was called to do. He was called to prepare the way for the Lord. Right? He's teaching. He's, he's out in the desert, and people are coming to John the Baptist. And what is John the Baptist doing? He's saying, repent of your sins, believe in the gospel, right? Repent of your sins, be baptized. When Jesus shows up on the scene, is John the Baptist saying what? He's saying, there he is, right there. There's the guy. There's Jesus. There's the one we're talking about. That's him right there. John's not saying, hey, I'm, I'm still the guy. No, John the Baptist was, there he is. There's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist's whole goal was to point to another. He was not the end. He was pointing to another. Elijah would come and tell the people about what the Lord was calling them to, to, to prepare the way even for Jesus in those years before he would come. The prophets are coming to point to the future, point to the beyond. See, Jesus is not one who is pointing to another. Jesus did not come to say, look over there, there's another coming. No, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the entire religions and philosophies have gotten this completely wrong. They believe that Jesus is held in high esteem. As you see, the, the people are saying that Jesus is held in high esteem as maybe a prophet. He's a messenger of God. So surely let's esteem him. Let's give him his proper place. You see, uh, Islamic faith would say that there is another still to come. That Jesus was a good prophet, but yet there is still another to come. And Muhammad would come and he would continue showing more and telling more of the fullness of what God is trying to do. So you see entire religions and cults would still say that there is yet another to come. That Jesus is not fulfillment of all of scripture. He is forerunner with scripture. And we know the end of the story. We know that there is not another coming. That, that Jesus is the one. Jesus is pointing to himself. All the prophets of old have been pointing to Jesus, constantly saying, he is the one, he is the one, he is the one that would come. Friends, when we look at this, we have to understand that Jesus is not forerunner. There is not another coming. And the Bible makes this clear in Hebrews 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Elijah all these different prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus is not a forerunner in the line of prophets. He's not another that would come to prepare the way. He is the way. He has come to be the way, the truth, and the life. He is fulfillment of all that Scripture has been foretelling for generations upon generations. He is the one. So as we look at this, we can imagine many of us in this room would say, we, we get it, Mark, that Jesus is the one. He's the reason why we're here. 
We're not looking for another Jesus to come. We're not looking for another prophet that would come to tell us about how to make it to heaven. But in some regards, sometimes we, we still struggle with, I'm looking for something else. I know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but I'm going to look for some more peace somewhere else. I know Jesus is the hope of the world, but surely there's some hope in some other places, right? I know that Jesus is all that he says he is, but maybe there's some other stuff that I can kind of bring into this equation to give me some things that maybe I'm looking for. And Jesus was not forerunner. He is fulfillment. And you see also with that the struggle of a one-sided Jesus, letter B, the struggle of a one-sided Jesus. You see this in verse 30, that Jesus would come after Peter gives the proclamation that you are the Christ. Jesus strictly tells him not to tell anybody. And you may say at first glance, why would Jesus, after hearing that he is the Christ, and that's exactly the thing that he would want his disciples to say, why would he then charge them not to tell anybody? To this point, we've seen both the apostles and the people struggle to identify truly who Jesus is. And even knowing that he is the Christ, they still believe that he has come to be a political king on the land. They're believing that Jesus has come to make everything right politically and in their world, to make their their people rise up, to make all their problems go away. And they're seeing Jesus through the lens of what they want. That they want Jesus to be a king who would make all the political structures better instantly. That he would make their problems, their culture, their people, their nation rise above all the others. And Jesus would come in on that white horse and everything would be okay for them. They're, They're still seeing Jesus through this lens. You see in the subsequent verses that we'll talk about next week that Peter, even though he proclaims the Christ, doesn't truly understand what Jesus has come to do. To die on the cross. To live a sinless, perfect life. To save us of not just some of our sins, but all of our sins. See, the reality is, if we miss Jesus, we miss everything. If we miss the reality of this question, if we miss this, we have missed everything everything. In our personal lives, if we have acclaimed all this wealth, if we've accumulated all this stuff, if we've accumulated cars and trophies and all this stuff, houses and lake houses and beach houses, if we've accumulated all of this stuff in our lives, but miss Jesus, we've missed it all. If we accumulate power and status in this culture, if we are acclaimed above all people in this culture, if people love us and care about us and we have made some name for ourselves among this nation that we're in, if we, if we rise to power in some different ways, if we have authority in this world, but we miss Jesus in the midst of it, we, we've missed it all. In, in this church, If we're here just to sing some songs and come to let our kids hear some good moral teaching so they can be better citizens of these United States and be good people, if we've come here just to be good people and miss Jesus, we've missed it all. In our marriages, friends, if our goal is for our husbands and wife to come together and follow and trust in Jesus, to raise our kids to know Jesus, to pour Jesus into every portion, every part of our soul, if Jesus is not the core of all that we are, if we miss this and say he's just a good teacher, he's another good prophet, he's somebody that we esteem, but he is not our Lord, we miss it all. Friends, if we miss Jesus in the midst of all that we're doing, if we just if we if we miss Jesus 
You can bury us with the best of our stuff. And we've missed it. Which will lead us to this ultimate reality from Jesus in verse 29. In the midst of asking his apostles who other people say that he is, the reality of Jesus' question is Jesus looks at his apostles. And he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Now, take, a, take a moment to think. This is the, the turning point of the book of Mark. Uh, these disciples have seen miraculous teaching. I mean, authoritative, miraculous teaching in the synagogues, in these back rooms where Jesus is talking about all the parables. He's explaining things to them. They've seen the breaking of the bread. They've seen the eyes that can see. They've seen the lame man walk. They've seen the paralytic get up and take his mat and go home. They've seen all of this incredible stuff. And Jesus says, now who do you say I am? It's their moment where at some point they have to make their faith their own. At some point they have to say, I I believe this guy. I know I keep getting in the boat. I keep not understanding, but I trust in you. Back in college, um, Brittany and I uh, went to Auburn together, and Brittany is just one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. In high school, we'd take tests together, or we wouldn't take them together, but we'd take tests, we'd walk out of the room, and uh, I'd say something like, man, I, I aced that thing. I think I got everything right. Like I, I nailed that test. Like I, A plus, 100%. There's not a question that I got wrong. She would come out of the test and say, I didn't even answer the whole back page. I failed that test. I did terrible would come out and I would fail the test and she would make 100, like every time. And so we went to college in uh, Auburn and freshman year, I thought it'd be fun, let's take a class together. And so I I did what every wonderful student is. I went on the website where you can find the the easiest professor. Uh, All you college students know website, you go and find your easiest professor. So uh, that was not in Brittany's vocabulary, but mine was let's find the easiest professors for every class that I could find and let's take those classes. So uh, I found us a class, a history class, the easiest possible professor. I thought it'd be a big auditorium. They're not gonna know for paying attention. We'll sit in the back where all the good students sit and uh, just, just charge for it on this thing. When test time comes, I've got Brittany right beside me. She takes flawless notes with the highlighters and the gel pens and all sorts of stuff. Her, her notes are like just these works of art. And mine are usually like, you know, oh, this is important and, you know, nothing. And so I thought I'll have her by my side. We'll take this test and she can help me study and she can just tell me all the things that the teacher said that I need to know and I don't have to worry. Show up to class on the first day ready to go. The teacher has been replaced. We've got the hardest professor that's ever taught at Auburn University. It's this huge auditorium and we have assigned seating. I'm Bethay, her last name's Tucker. So I sit in the front right, she sits in the back left. I'm thinking, well, it's gonna be okay. I mean, she's still got taken the notes, we'll be fine. Everything will be all right. And so we go to take our first test and I go and get my Scantron and I recognize that moment of, I can't put her name at the top of this piece of paper. I've got to put Mark Bethay. Even though we studied together, even though I had her notes, even though I knew everything, I'd sat in the same classes that she was in, even though she was the most brilliant person I'd ever met, even though we were dating, it was my name at the top of that paper. It it was my knowledge of what I'd learned in the class. It was my understanding of what the teacher had said. It was my name at the top of that piece of paper. I know it seems trivial, But at the end of the day, it's not what our spouse thinks. It's not what I think. It's not anything other than our name, our life. What do you say about Jesus? 
And the good news this morning is that there is no scantrons in heaven. Praise the Lord. There's no test in heaven. There's not a moment where you get into heaven and Jesus says, here's, here's your test. You need to explain the Trinity perfectly and you need to recite all 66 books of the Bible. And then after that, I need to explain a clear presentation of predestination. If you get it wrong, you're going to hell. There's not a moment where he says, here, here, if you made a 74, you just barely skated in a 73, enjoy hell. That's not heaven. There's no test to get into heaven or not get into heaven. The reality is the answer to this question, who do you say that I am, determines our eternal destination, friends. Same question that Jesus asked his disciples is so similar to the same question that he would beckon 2,000 years later. The disciples have seen sermon after sermon. They've witnessed the breaking of the bread. They've seen all these incredible miracles and they've come to the end of all this for Jesus to say, now what, who do you say that I am? And so if I could ask this question to you this morning, as I look out, many of you have, you've probably heard thousands of sermons, hundreds of sermons. You've probably maybe sung through the Baptist hymnal a couple times in your life. You've been to retreats and seminars and conferences. Maybe you read your Bible faithfully. The question would still apply. In light of all that you've seen, in light of all that you've done, in light of all that you've been to and experienced and heard with your ears, who do you say Jesus is? Is he a good prophet? Is he a good teacher? Is he a wonderful moral man who we can get our morals based after? Or is he Emmanuel, God with us, who lived on this earth a sinless and perfect life, who died on the cross, not just for other people's sins, but for your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world? Not only was he put in a tomb, but he raised on the third day triumphant over death and triumphant over sin. If Jesus is your Christ, if he is your Messiah, if he is your Lord and Savior, wouldn't that change a portion of your life? No, no, it would change everything. And so the answer to this question, in light of living in light of baptism, in light of living in light of what Jesus has done for you, the answer to that question, who do you say Jesus is, changes everything every portion of your life. It changes your eternal destination. If we believe Jesus is just to be esteemed, Jesus is our Lord. He is your Savior. He has done what you could not do. And so when we call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus isn't beckoning to say, well, let me read your scantron when you make it to heaven. And when we call upon the name of the Lord, when we trust in the Lord with our entirety of our lives, it says, all who trust and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the reality of Jesus' question is huge. In light of all that you've done, in light of all that you've heard, who do you say that Jesus is? And then number three, the joy in Jesus' response to Peter. Verse 29, Peter responded to him, you are the Christ. In Matthew 16, 17, Matthew's interpretation or his time there and to tell the story of what happened in this moment, he says, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Jesus is filled with joy at Peter's response. 
I think so much about last week about the blind man and the stage healing shows us where the disciples are. That they follow Jesus, Jesus has touched them, and they are still seeing dimly now. But think about this reality that to this point in the book of Mark, no human has exclaimed that Jesus is the Son of God. No human has proclaimed that's the Messiah, that's him. You've got John the Baptist, but you don't have any others who have stepped up to say he is the one, except for the demons. Because Jesus has healed over and over three or four times. We see in Mark chapter 1, 24, and the demons cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Don't you think it was joy in Jesus' ears not to hear the demons describe who he is, but to see his disciples say who he was. The joy for Jesus to know that his disciples are getting it. Their eyes are being opened. They're able to see clearly who he is. And time would tell us he is resurrected from the grave. The disciples would see that Jesus is not a political ruler or a king, but he is their Savior and their Lord. This beautiful affirmation from the disciples that we'll pick up next week that would lead us into communion. As we conclude this morning, I want to ask you that key question that's at the bottom of your outline. Who do you say Jesus is? As we come to a time of invitation, I pray that that question reverberates in your soul. Reverberates throughout your day, the morning, as you, as you go about today just thinking, Lord, who, who are you to me? Or do I, do I simply just want you to teach me good moralistic teaching so I can be a good person in this world? Or do I want you to change our political systems? Lord, I want you to be a political ruler. I want you to just change our political systems. Or do I see you as a genie that I just come to and just, I pray and I pray that you would just do some things for me. Or as the answer to that question, you are my Lord you are my God. You have saved me where I could not save myself. And the answer to that question changes everything for us. Let's pray together. Lord, help us. We again come to your word, and Lord, we, Lord, I, Lord, I, I don't want to just say the right thing. I don't want to just say that you're the Christ, but not mean it in my heart. I don't want to sing songs. I don't want to read your word. I don't want to just say aloud, yes, you are the one. You are the Messiah. You are my king and not believe it deep in my heart. Lord, I, I confess the times in which I'm, I'm looking for something else. I'm, I'm taken off the gaze of you and I look to other things to satisfy and make whole and make complete, Lord. Lord, you are my God. You have saved me. You have saved us. I repent of when I try to make it about something else. I repent of the times where I, I see temporary things in light of eternal things. I repent, Lord, of when I miss the mark of my eyes fixated on you as the author and perfecter of my faith. Or would you help me? Or would you give me eyes to see and ears to listen, a heart to love, a mouth to speak? Or thank you. Lord, thank you that you don't throw us away when we don't have all the right answers or have all the right actions. You love, pursue, care, and strengthen as we keep getting in the boat. 
We love you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.